Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About Development. Mr. Chief Justice, fellow citizens, the peoples of the earth face the future with grave uncertainty. In this time of doubt, they look to the United States as never before for goodwill, strength, and wise leadership. It is fitting, therefore, that we take this occasion... January 20th, 1949. American President-elect Harry Truman makes his inaugural address. The U.S. has emerged from the war as the world's preeminent power, and Truman confidently assumes the mantle of world leadership by projecting a new mission for the United States. What will become known as international development we must embark on a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. More than half the people of the world are living in conditions approaching misery. Their food is inadequate. They are victims of disease. Their economic life is primitive and stagnant. Their poverty is a handicap and a threat both to them and to more prosperous areas. For the first time in history, humanity possesses in knowledge and skill the knowledge and skill to relieve the suffering of these people. The United States is preeminent among the nations in the development of industrial and scientific techniques. I believe that we should make available to peace-loving people the benefits of our store of technical knowledge in order to help them realize their aspirations for a better life. And in cooperation with other nations, we should foster capital investment in areas needing development. Such new economic developments must be devised and controlled to the benefit of the peoples of the areas in which they are established. The old imperialism exploitation for foreign profits has no place in our plan. In 1949, international development had a bright, innocent sound, at least for Truman's American listeners. The president could still plausibly portray the United States as the very image of a developed society, a model all the world could imitate. Today, as development staggers into its fifth decade, the very meaning of the concept has become uncertain. The UN's Brundtland Commission now calls for sustainable development, but many doubt that this is more than a contradiction in terms and call for a more fundamental rethinking. Tonight on Ideas, we'll examine the question of whether development has a future. You'll hear from German thinker Wolfgang Sachs, who thinks it doesn't. Those societies after which development was supposed to be patterned, namely North America and Europe, are marching into a dead end. So what kind of example is that? The moment you stop considering North America and Europe as an example, it doesn't make sense anymore to talk about development. And you'll hear from David Brooks, of Canada's International Development Research Centre, who thinks that development can and must be redefined. 
we're like an airplane flying in some mountains. And when our navigator spots a mountain directly ahead of us, there are a number of things we can do. But one of them is not to turn off the engines of the airplane. You don't stop the airplane in midair. And modern economies are much more like that. You just can't stop them. You can't just walk away from development at this point in time. Tonight's program is the first of four programs called Redefining Development. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. In 1966, American sociologist Irving Lewis Horowitz published a book called Three Worlds of Development. Its title embodied an idea whose time had come. Soon, virtually the whole of Asia, Africa, and Latin America could be swept into one neat conceptual dustpan called the Third World. This way of speaking has now become problematic. With the collapse of communism and the end of the Cold War, it no longer makes sense to speak of a third world. Nor do the rich countries of the first world any longer appear as objects of unambiguous admiration. The obvious damage development has done to the natural fabric of our own societies has made us only too aware that our own way of life is unsustainable. This has created a crisis for those who want to renew and reinvigorate the project of international development. So they have invented sustainable development to provide the new conceptual framework they require. But there are others who claim that development itself is an obsolete idea. It's too compromised, too weighted down with contradictory meanings, they say, to be of any further use. One of these thinkers is Wolfgang Sachs, a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Essen, West Germany. Sachs' background is in the German Green Movement. He worked on alternative energy policies for Germany as part of the research group on energy and society at the Technical University of Berlin and wrote a book on the life of the automobile, now being translated into English. Then, in the early 80s, he edited a journal called Development, published in Rome, and that's the point at which my conversation with Wolfgang Sachs begins. I served as the editor of that journal for three and a half, four years. Not because I felt to be a third world expert, mm -hmm. somebody who knows how development down there in the south should go on and should be executed. No, it was rather because I wanted to represent our historical experiences with progress with modernization, this historical experience in our own countries, to represent them and to tell them to third world representatives. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to pull these experiences into the general discourse on development, what development is all about. Mm -hmm. And I think today you cannot discuss development anymore without taking into consideration that those nations who had long been thought to be the ideals of development, that those nations today have ended up to being at that end. The moment we talk about development, we necessarily include the image, the idea of a fully developed society. And historically, this has been the United States, basically, and Europe. Now, the moment we do not know anymore what a fully developed society would be, 
there's no point in it we're talking about underdevelopment. So the whole conceptual framework seems to be crumbling today. So I thought it is time to admit that we have here in front of us what I would call a mental ruin. It's not only that buildings can turn into ruins. And that's time to look at this mental ruin, to uh, examine the layers upon which it is built, to be amazed on what kind of structures, what kind of buildings, what kind of annexes, what the shape of this ruin is, in order then, in a way, to leave it behind. To say, well, this has happened in the past, and this we can say in order to explain to ourselves what has happened, but now it's time to leave the shadow of these ruins. So, in a way, to be better able to say farewell to development, I thought it would be nice to have an archaeology of it. From when do you date the concept of development? I would like to modify slightly the question. I'd rather say where I see the concept underdevelopment was born. And that is surprisingly clear. It's just enough to look into the Oxford English Dictionary, and you will see that it was President Truman in his inauguration speech as president on the 20th January of 49, who used first the term underdeveloped areas in this world. Before 49, this was not known. One did not know, one did not speak in that term about countries, let's say, on the southern, in the southern hemisphere. But the, surely the colonial powers had always regarded these same areas now being called underdeveloped from a fairly lofty height. Did they not always regard these areas as underdeveloped? No, I don't think so. Of course, the colonial powers looked down upon these countries. However, it was a looking down upon which somehow comes out of a different attitude. It comes out of a different mental framework. Colonialism basically was patterned after the father-child relationship. These countries down there were not mature yet. They were immature. They were ignorant. They were somehow still in the childhood of human evolution. So they had to be put under authority. They had to be put under moral supervision. Lord Lugan, in the 20s, concerning the British Empire, has described the mission of England in a double way. He said, first, the mission of England, of course, is to profit from the overseas territories. And second, however, more importantly, he said, it is necessary, England has to be there in order to lead the natives onto a higher moral plane. Now, it is after the Second World War that these two different goals converge into one, coincide into one. And this is then called development. Because now, economic mobilization equals higher civilization. So now these two formally distinct goals collapse into one. And this 
collapsing into one has been possible because now we don't talk about a relationship of authority anymore between England or France and the overseas territory, but we talk about relationships of commerce, of trade, of market. So on the one hand, the mission of development, of course, was a mission which was gladly assumed and defined by the United States, which became the dominating world power after the Second World War. So in order to project its global mission, it needed development. In particular, because development was, as I said before, not linked to the colonial discourse. On the other hand, however, it is also clear that there was not only after the war a world power seeking for its mission, there were also many new states emerging, new governments being formed, who were seeking for a raison d'état as well. The anti-colonial movements in the 50s, in the 60s, and then in particular the young nations, searched desperately for a justification why they are there, which was not an easy thing to do, because in many of these countries, states were not known, at least not modern states in our sense were known. So in order to impose taxes, in order to set up administrations, in order to extend control, in order to mobilize step by step a whole country, some uh, mobilizing goal had to be set up. And this was development. How do these nations consent to feel about themselves, in your view, when they agree to portray themselves, be portrayed as underdeveloped or developing? Well, looked at it from today, it seems to me that more and more uh, people realize that in the 50s and the 60s, most of these young nations have set out to run on a racetrack which leads towards a dead end, towards an impasse. And that whereas, let's say, in the 50s and 60s, it would have been imaginable to start off into various directions according to the heritage of, you know, each country. Today, many countries have embarked upon the same path and are running into the same direction and find it increasingly difficult to find their own way to branch off the direction which has been indicated by the United States and to find their own way, in a way to invent, to create their own project as a society, to work for a way to live together, to produce, to be in life, which conforms better to their traditions, to their long-standing aspirations to what they really are inside. You spoke a little while ago of Truman and of the origins of this discourse and the, and the invention of the underdeveloped areas. You've uh, then traced the idea of development through a number of permutations. Can you say roughly what these phases you see the idea going through are until you come to the present, to sustainable development? In the 50s, development was basically the result of capital investment. So you would transfer capital 
you would transfer later on certain qualifications, certain technical assistance. This input was supposed to get development going, to reach that point of takeoff beyond which, as it was said, development or growth would be self-sustained. There were the modifications in the 60s, as I said already, one discovered that it's not only a problem of capital investment, it is also has to do with people. So then one talked about manpower planning, schooling and education in order to form manpower for development, to staff, if you want, the apparatus of producing GNP. I would say that then an important watershed has to be identified in the early 70s when it became increasingly clear that uh, transferring capital, forming manpower was not enough, that on the contrary, many development efforts had produced quite unexpected results. It's shortly speaking that with development, poverty grew. That people in the third world didn't become richer or didn't somehow embark on a general upward street, but that societies in the South polarized themselves. Some people became much richer and many, other, many others became much poorer. That was most forcefully, at least uh, uh, from a prominent political stage, expressed by McNamara in his famous speech in September 73 uh, before the World Bank uh, Assembly in Nairobi, where he drew that conclusion saying, we have to acknowledge that poverty has even increased and that development leads to that the richer get richer and the poorer get poorer. Now, this acknowledgement, this admission, if you want, however, did not lead to what you would expect, that one would have abolished or abandoned the politics of development because they had failed. No, it led to another operation. It led to the extension of the concept of development. And immediately McNamara already introduced a new concept. He talked about rural development, about equitable development. So one dealt with the failure of development by extending the meaning of development. Uh, it was as if you have a building and now you'll see the building doesn't really fit and to put an annex to it. But the old building still stays there. You just put an annex to it, a second entrance if you want. This building of annex after annex is Sachs's paradigm for the history of development. Development theory, in his view, has become something like the Ptolemaic astronomy of the Middle Ages. One deals with the fact that the theory doesn't really describe the motions of the planets all that accurately by constantly adding new epicycles to their orbits. Eventually, the theory becomes meaningless. Whenever one notices failure, uh, destructive effects of development, the concept was extended, it exploded. And it ended up that development included both the injury as well as the therapy. So it was development to bring big 
dams to India in order to increase the production of electricity as it was development to heal the wounds and working with the tribals there who had been uh, driven out of their land through this big dam. So the injury was called development and the therapy was called development. Inflicting of wounds on an indigenous population as well as healing these wounds. So a development becomes a word which doesn't say anything anymore. It means the one thing and it means also the contrary. Now this pattern, I would now say, has been maintained until the 80s. And now in the middle of the 80s, the rise of uh, uh, sustainable development as the new catchword certainly signals a new age of development. Again, in the 80s, it was increasingly recognized that conventional development leads to environmental disruption. Now again, the consequence out of that recognition was not to finish with the business of development, but to extend development, to keep on politics of growth and conventional politics of development on the one hand, and on the other hand, now also to take care of the environment, to invent new methods to deal with problems of resource management, problems of uh, environmental dislocation, problems of pollution. So for that reason now, you have today the Brundtland Report, which can call itself a report on environment, but at the same time call for a five to tenfold increase in the world GNP over the next 20, 30 years. So again, the same logic is at work. And in that, this in that case is also nicely, I mean, in the word, it is an oxymoron to talk about sustainable development. Because if you want development, then if it has in any way the same or a similar meaning to what it used to be, it means non-sustainable. And if you want sustainability, it's very questionable that you can have development. By the time we get to sustainable development, we're a long way down a chain of consequences, right? Where each new phase of development, in a way, is cleaning up the last phase or absorbing some new contradiction into this growing amoeba, <laughs> as you've called concepts like development. Even if one accepts that's true, however, by the time you get that far down the chain, is there an alternative? Well, I think the, the Brundtland Report wants uh, to have the cake and eat it. On the one hand, uh, they would like more or less continue the politics of development and growth which have been around since the time of Truman. They would like to continue the enterprise to boost the GNP and to close a little bit the gap between North and South by, you know, bringing the South closer to the North. And on the other hand, they would like to do that in an ecologically peaceful way. And I think both is not possible. So if you want the uh, perspective beyond the Brundtland report, would be somewhat 
what I said before about development, admit that the ideology of development today is obsolete. That it doesn't make sense to talk about catching up, that the South catches up with the North. That it doesn't make sense to look for the future of southern countries by looking to the achievements of northern countries. And that only a uh, politics of wild diversity, a politics of manifold experimentation, an attempt to spell out a path out of the history and tradition of each country can perhaps, I don't say automatically, but can perhaps open up ways which make it possible to live in a decent manner on this planet and to live in a decent manner without falling into the hands of a global ecological management. The alternative to development is usually portrayed as being stagnation, that is, one other develops or one underdevelops. <laughs> You're saying that the opposite term is a culturally directed, one can't say development then, but a culturally directed social project? Well, um, first of all, there is not one development. Uh, there can only be many, many, many developments. But then it doesn't make sense to talk about development anymore. There are different, if you want, projects, ideas, directions to follow, different guiding images and ideas. And they have already been there. If you think Zabata, early this century, led the Mexican peasants to revolution under the slogan and under the image of ejidos. The hope was to create ejidos, which means a certain form of collective agriculture, a certain way of independent collective communities which are based on the Indian tradition. So it was an idea of what the good life is about, which came out of the Mexican history. The same was true for Gandhi. Gandhi's key word was Swaraj, which meant a mixture out of inner independence and outer independence. It uh, was an idea which, again, had to do with the thousands and thousands of villages in India, which for Gandhi were looking for a way to be more villages and to conform more to their own ideals. Now, I would say the country to development, let's say global experimenting, I think is for me the contrary to development. An experimenting which is more and more indispensable, again, because we are in a situation where the one the royal path towards higher development doesn't exist anymore. Now, each country in the world is faced with the question where to go. And no country knows a compelling answer. So all countries are in search. So the only thing what you can do is, if you want, to broaden the possibilities. 
to let flourish what is there, to increase the richness of forms of life we have on this, uh, in this world. Right. It seems evidently true that, as you're saying, the Royal Road is, um, appears to be crumbling as awareness of some kind of environmental crisis intensifies, it seems the dead end becomes more evident. But this doesn't necessarily mean that the lure of the modern uh, disappears, does it? That everyone suddenly wakes up from the dream. It is clear that the most important effect of modern technology is a symbolic effect. What I'm saying is that uh, uh, whatever we here in the North have created has a tremendous impact on the imagination of the people, of the peoples of this world. So even if they have no means to live like that, their heads are full of images of that world. And the images they used to have in their mind are fading away. So they are going to be stuck in that dilemma. On the one hand, having their minds set on the style of life in the North, which is projected to them in an idealized fashion through television. Uh, and on the other hand, not having the possibilities, the resources to do that. How to get out of that impasse, I mean, is a deep historical question which will determine uh, not only the end of this century, but also the next century. So when you say that development is over, that you're doing an archaeology in ruins, <laughs> is this quite strictly true? Well, I do it in a polemical fashion. Yeah. I'm not an, I don't make an empirical statement. Yeah. But I would like to clear the possibility for debate or for a fight, if you want. <laughs> Wolfgang Sachs of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Essen, West Germany. Wolfgang Sachs calls development an amoeba word, a plastic verbal element which can be used to lend weight to statements which no longer have any precise meaning. As such, he considers that it's become a hindrance rather than a spur to creative thought. David Brooks disagrees. He thinks that sustainable development can be given a precise operational meaning. Brooks is a longtime environmentalist and a founder of the Canadian branch of Friends of the Earth, Energy Probe, and the federal government's Office of Energy Conservation in the early 70s. Today, he's the Associate Director for Environmental Policy in the Social Sciences Division of the federal government's International Development Research Centre. We spoke in Ottawa recently, and he told me that he thinks that the UN's Brundtland Commission provides the necessary framework for rethinking development. The Brundtland Report, for all of its deficiencies and fuzziness and uh, wanting to eat your cake and have it two kinds of statements about development, was a 
pathbreaking document. And the very fact that it was written by politicians and not by environmentalists, the fact that it was a, a consensus and not just an east-west consensus, which is turning out to be relatively easy, but a north-south consensus, made it important. And within the notions and the way it's been developed since then by both ecologists and economists and political scientists, we're getting to a framework, an operational framework, that is something you can use to decide what you should do tomorrow and next year and the year after to make policy choices. That's far, far ahead of what was available at the time of limits to growth, which was a relatively important, I mean, again, limits to growth was seminal. It gave us a term, it gave us a concept, but it was naive in its operational implications. In describing the uh, policy conclusions of the limits to growth, Dennis Meadows and others used to often use the metaphor of a, of a ship sailing toward an iceberg. And they would say that uh, when the lookout sights ahead and identifies a, uh, an iceberg, the captain doesn't simply say, uh, look, you're a worry monger, and dismiss it. What the captain does is stop the ship. Uh, I don't think that analogy makes any sense at all. A much better analogy, we're, we're like an airplane flying in some mountains. And when our navigator spots a mountain directly ahead of us, there are a number of things we can do. But one of them is not to turn off the engines of the airplane. You don't stop the airplane in midair. And modern economies are much more like that. You just can't stop them. You can adjust them here and there. You can gradually build in new goals. You can move them to the right, the left, up and down, but you certainly don't just turn them off. The Brundtland report clearly recognized that. I don't think they carried it far enough. I think they were making, uh, they weren't adjusting the direction of the airplane adequately enough. It did provide, though, the, the basis for saying we can make much more significant changes, and in fact, we will have to make more significant changes. Well, can you sketch in for me what you think happened between the Stockholm conference, limits to growth era, and the Brundtland Commission? How did the environment development discussion evolve over that period as you understand it? It's essentially what happened and what was formalized by the Brundtland report was a shift of cause and effect. At the time of the Stockholm meeting, the emphasis was on what the economy could do to the environment. That is, as you grew, you were going to have adverse effects on the environment. In effect, it was the, uh, was the formalization of the need for, let's say, environmental impact assessment. It doesn't ask much about what you're doing. It says, whatever you're going to do, just do it better from an environmental perspective. By the time of the Brundtland Commission, for, for a variety of reasons, and, but in both developed and developing countries, we'd suddenly realize it's not the economy that's affecting the environment. It's the environment that's affecting the economy. We'd flip the whole thing around, and people were realizing we had to ask not only how to make marginal adjustments in the system, but where was the system going? How big could it get? Well, what was it that had flipped the discussion around? A couple of things. One was the essentially the failure of development, the recognition in the poorest countries that they were limited by environment, that as their environmental deteriorated because of naive attempts at development, they were in fact worse off. 
Second, the uh, global issues had become more apparent. No one could avoid uh, by that time, no one who was working on this, these issues could be unaware of the problems in the oceans, of the growing concentrations of gases in the atmosphere, of the uh, effects of desertification, deforestation. They were now global phenomena. There is simply not enough room in the uh, carbon dioxide, uh, the, the available carbon dioxide space, we might say, in the atmosphere for developing nations. We have to reduce the amount of space, environmental space we're taking up in the world in order to let developing nations take up a little bit of theirs. And I think it's that kind of trade-off that is implicit in the, uh, in the notion of sustainable development. For you, sustainable development is a, is a paradigm shift. Yes. You've said that. Why is it a paradigm shift? It's a paradigm shift because what is important is no longer economic growth, but development in the sense that Herman Daly uses the term, which is a realization of potential. It's a, a quality concept. In effect, we shift the emphasis from per capita gross domestic product or per capita monetary income or something of this kind to quality of life. Have the big organizations that have adopted sustainable development, in fact, undergone a paradigm shift, or have they simply put the concept on the letterhead? Neither one nor the other. It would be saying too little to say they've just put it on the letterhead, but it would be saying an awful lot too much to suggest it's a paradigm shift. No, I think what's happened is that they've caught up with 1972, or 1972 has caught up with them. The Most of the organizations that are adopting sustainable development have added environment to what they otherwise would have done. They aren't questioning yet what the meaning of development is. And, and very few organizations are. But it would be a mistake to discount the changes that we are seeing because they, they for me, they don't go far enough. I think for most environmentalists, they don't go far enough. Environmental impact assessment is a very important step. And it'll move from projects to groups of projects. It'll move to, to country assessments, to policy assessments. And at each stage, we'll be bringing more and more in. You, you take those gains. You don't pretend that they're the answer, but they are very important. There, there are very few of these steps that are counterproductive. Well, that, another view, which I, I associate with a group that I would call the conservatives in this debate, the one who has, I think, been the most interesting to me, if not influential, is Ivan Illich, who defined development nearly 30 years ago as the war on subsistence mm -hmm. and yes. saw that basically development sets tradition and culture against development and sees development basically eroding culture eroding people's capacity to cope and to deal with their environment as they have traditionally done so. Now, for that point of view, I think sustainable development is counterproductive. It isn't just, that it isn't just one inadequate step on the road to reform, but it's something completely different, something more sinister. It's a, it's a, it's a colonization of, it's a further colonization of culture by economics. 
Yeah, and, and I think uh, there are other people like um, Vandana Shiva. Vandana Shiva, I think, would be in that group very much. Teddy yeah. Goldsmith would yeah, be on Teddy, the... Yeah. How do you it's, see that? Do you, do you it's, a, it's a very important perspective. It's one that I agree with on the one hand and don't agree with on the other hand. Certainly the <clears throat> protection of subsistence options, the protection of cultural diversity uh, is critically important. And there are many things we can do to promote it. The problem is we often don't have the land space. We often don't have the, uh, the ecological room to, to do those things. I would take the arguments of Illich and Shiva and, and Goldsmith very seriously. It means that you probably make development projects, even sustainable development, even what I would think of as good development, as small as you possibly can. Uh, you give as, as much of the control as possible to the community, but the community is not going to be uniform. I don't want to fall into the trap or be seen to be falling into the trap of, uh, of making rural life in villages seem like some kind of ideal, and I think some of these authors sometimes do. I remember uh, Ivan Illich's book, Extolling the Virtues of the Bicycle. I don't think he's traveled around Winnipeg very much in January. And similarly, life in many villages was pretty difficult. It was, it was not easy, even for those groups, uh, women and children, ethnic communities that are often the focus of the, uh, the objections to conventional development. The balance isn't easy, and it's not simple, and there are no general rules. I, I don't, um, if you take Vandana Shiva's work, let's mm. say, um, I don't understand her as saying that this life was easy. What I understand her as saying is that the alternative that was proffered to people was no alternative. It didn't actually exist, this neutral, secular, degendered space yeah. that was supposed to open up before people. In fact, it was a mirage. So what happened was, and this is, I think, also what Illich meant by, by calling development a war on subsistence. He meant that what would be the result would be what he called modernized poverty. I think neither writer denies people the right to, to choose their path. But I think they're saying that what the development that they were seeing not only restricted options for people rather than opening them, but in fact, it took the most vulnerable members of society and made them even more vulnerable. Again, uh, I think the objects of sustainability, when you, when you start to take sustainable development in its broader concept, not the one that focuses just on natural resources, what has been good development the kinds of development that have focused on people, then I think the, uh, the options are there for, for differences. The question I want to raise then is what, is what is development? It seems to me that if you trace this term back, um, as writers like Illich have done, it comes into general use um, in the late 40s with Truman, who for the first time identifies virtually the whole non-European world as underdeveloped areas. Though there are certain assumptions that, that are made at that time and seem to become accepted almost overnight. But the main one, it seems to me, is that there is some universal homogeneous process that can be called development. 
Now, this then goes through a whole series of permutations mm -hmm. as it fails and is redefined and it fails and it's redefined and it fails and it's redefined, right? Now, a cynic uh, would be inclined to say, why not abandon this misbegotten attempt to postulate some universal homogeneous process called development and, and recognize that it was a failure and that, in fact, we can't live without some culturally generated notion of the good, which directs us. A, a local, culturally sensitive notion of, of the good does not seem to me to be incompatible with sustainable development, as I understand it. Well, it, it, it may be incompatible with $100 million from the World Bank, which... Absolutely. And I think as soon as you're talking in those terms, that's why I say the World Bank hasn't accepted the paradigm. They are still doing the same projects with environment. You know, envir they're, they're smoothing out the edges with environment, uh, avoiding the worst ill effects. But it's not sustainable development. I still don't think they value local knowledge. I mean, $100 million, just the scale drowns any local... Uh, we're probably dealing with projects of 50,000 and 100,000, and even CETA I mean, can't deal with it, though. They, they want something in the millions. The real dangers of development is that it, it assumes a common set of goals, probably even also a, a common set of processes, but it it's also suggests that uh, Western scientific notions will prove the, it's, it's what everyone's been waiting for in, in the uh, developing world. They just don't realize it yet, so, so we will bring it to them. Obviously, anyone who's been existing for hundreds or thousands of years has been living in a form of sustainable development. Sustainable development is what was there. We're trying to get to a form of sustainable development that leaves what was there, or a level that leaves what was there, but at a sufficiently higher income level in some sense. It may not be higher monetary income, but a sufficiently higher income to give people real opportunities in a world that is increasingly crowded, that is uh, a world that of, of interconnections. And I think both some of those who suggest that we should just withdraw from development or that the uh, uh, everything can go on as before, are forgetting, number one, simply the numbers of people involved. I mean, population is a problem. And second, how many of those people are living in cities? And uh, so immediately they have broken the links of a, of a self-sufficient, independently operating uh, society. You can't just walk away from it at this point. And I think one of the answers to the cynics is what happens then? Uh, suppose we close down the, all the multilateral banks and the bilateral aid agencies. I think it's a, a recipe for, uh, for political and ultimately military conflict. Initially political within and ultimately military between North and South. It seems to me one makes these choices as best one can. I, I think uh, perhaps it would be good um, to end this whole discussion. Mm-hmm about development. And the reason I think it would be good is that obviously we would go on talking. Yes, well... We would find new ways of... We would not then end everything that has been encompassed by that discussion. We would try to encompass it differently with new words, new approaches. 
And I think you're saying that's what you want to do under the banner of sustainable development. And I'm saying, is that prudent when, in fact, you want to reject practically everything that has happened up till now under the name of development? Wouldn't you be more, I don't want to say honest, but more revealing of your intention mm. if you spoke about something other than sustainable development? I mean, you can say with Daly, I don't mean growth by development. Yeah. I mean realization of potential. But then, like, you know, Humpty Dumpty, you're saying the words are going to mean what you want them to mean. Well, But, but what they have meant is pretty well yes. growth. Yeah, development has, for many people, meant growth. But it's not what it really means. I mean, we're not say, we're saying that they're, they're the Humpty Dumpties. We're using the word in its real meaning. And I don't deny that it's radical. I mean, that, that's what a paradigm shift implies. And uh, I would be quite happy if development budgets obviously not IDRC's budget, but other, I mean, the real development budgets were cut substantially. I don't think we need to spend much on concrete and, uh, and steel and, and big earth-moving equipment. I think that that's where the problems have lain. And yet there are good development projects. I've seen good QSO projects. I've seen some good Oxfam projects. I remember some water development projects that CARE Canada was doing well, they don't even start building anything until they've been in the village for a year until people know what they can do with water and what they're going to do and where they want the lines to go and what it is that water will do for them and how they'll manage the water system. And all of that happens before you start building a water system for a village. I think uh, Care Canada's model is a, a three-year process for each village, and it's only the middle year that actually involves pipes and, and a little bit of concrete and and some uh, water pumps. The rest of it is is talking, discussing, and letting the community find out how it's going to run that thing. And you can do much the same thing with local electrical. Electricity does not have to come in from wires from a central uh, utility. But we may be operating systems with a capacity of, of 5 to 10 kilowatts. You're just improving local industry, making it, uh, making it much more efficient. Now, I'm introducing, when I say efficiency, I'm introducing a Western notion. I agree. I don't think that implies that you disparage local knowledge. It does imply that you are changing something. So the only alternative is to pretend that the rest of the world isn't changing and that you can isolate some fraction of it. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't the alternative be to, to say that the rest of the world can change outside of our tutelage within something called development? Well, the rest of the world is changing. As well. I, I, I understood. What I was saying was, let it change. And you and this but, area, but will a stay development the same. implies tutelage by Western agencies. It provides governments. Um, governments or non-government organizations. I think it implies providing options, providing alternatives, suggesting different ways of of doing things, and letting the communities decide which of those methods to to opt for which of those methods to, to build into their system of operating. Uh, it's much like growing trees. Uh, within limits, there's no reason not to experiment with new kinds of seed, with new kinds of trees. There are reasons, for example, to import trees from other areas and try them out. What's a mistake is to try them out on a large scale and to design systems that always favor the richer farmers. You can think of systems that favor the poorer farmers, systems that can be operated at, with minimal capital and with the labor inputs that they have, and look for those kinds of options. 
look for options that are efficient at, at small scale, not at large scale, systems that, are, that work well with more rather than less labor inputs. And, but those, those may be somewhat different from what has been there before. And as long as the local community has the option to accept or reject them, I think they're worth, they're worth talking about. David, thank you. Okay. David Brooks of the International Development Research Center. During our conversation, I alluded to a passage in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, in which Humpty Dumpty says to Alice, When I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. It seems to me that the difference between David Brooks and Wolfgang Sachs, whom you heard earlier, does come down to just this question. Can development be made to mean something entirely new, or will it continue to mean what 40 years of history have made it mean? This is a question not just of a word changing its meaning, but of a vast international bureaucracy changing its practice. Whether big development institutions like the World Bank can change, and how they've affected local communities up till now, will be my subject next week when I talk to Pat Adams, the head of Development Watchdog, Probe International. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the first program of a four-part series called Redefining Development. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson, archivist Ken Pewley, technical direction, Lawn Tulk. A printed transcript of this show is available for $5 or $20 for the whole series of four. If you're ordering individual programs rather than the series, please tell us which program you want. Make your check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts and mail it to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please allow six to eight weeks from the end of the series for delivery. Redefining Development continues next week at this time. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.